Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. Welcome to our second episode today here at AOC 2021. I want to thank Mercury Systems for sponsoring all of epi- all the episodes today. Mercury is a leader in making trusted, secure, mission-critical technologies profoundly more accessible to aerospace and defense. You can learn more at mrcy.com. An important part of AOC 2021 is bringing our community around the world together to discuss the latest developments in EW and EMSO. And this year, we have several community business meetings that are happening here. They're not part of the official agenda, uh, but they are happening throughout the week. So we can bring, uh, we can be a a central meeting place for for our community. Uh, One such community meeting is that of SOSA, uh, the Sensor Open Systems Architecture Consortium. Uh, Earlier today, they held a reference architecture briefing and panel discussion. Uh, 2021 has seen a lot of momentum in and around SOSA, including the recent release of new SOSA Technical Standards 1.0. And the panel discussion today focused on recent milestones and what's on the horizon, including including presentations on SOSA activities by a panel of government and industry leaders. The panelists for today included Mr. David Tremper. He's the Director of Electronic Warfare in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. Mr. Giorgio Bertoli, Director for Spectrum Dominance and Intelligence Portfolio, CISSP. Dr. William Connolly, the Chief Technology Officer for Mercury Systems. And Dr. Naraj Srivastava, Vice President of Pacific Defense. Let's listen in. Systems is uh, also here. She's my co-lead. We've put together this briefing with a really good lineup of panelists, and um, so thank you for coming. So, um, as I mentioned, we have uh, four panelists up here. The goal of this this briefing is to introduce those of you who are not familiar with SOSA to the consortium and to the technical standard and explain how and why these initiatives are important to the defense community. And um, copies of the slides will be available to uh, all of you through the link at the end of the presentations. Uh, there will be uh, announcements as they were shared with the uh, from consortium members who are announcing new products here at the show this week. Um, to open it up, we have a welcome note from Dr. Charles Bay Johnson from Booz Allen Hamilton. So I'd like to pass it over to him. Thank you for coming. 
everybody here today. Actually, I was talking a little bit earlier about why I like working with this group and being around folks in this space because it really is about innovation. If you don't have any constraints, why do you need to be innovative? But when you're looking in the EW space, when you're talking about SOSA and how do you do things, it's those constraints that bring out the best of us, it brings out that innovative thought, and brings about the camaraderie and the working together that we all need to do to, um, to make things work. So I'd like to uh, welcome you to the uh, SOSA Reference Architecture presentation and panel discussion. Again, I'm uh, Dr. Charles Johnson Bay, but please call me CJ. I'm a senior vice president at Booz Allen Hamilton, and I work as part of our chief translation office where we translate ideas into um, products and, and solutions. So this is one of the first return to person uh, events of 2021. So it is really good to see everybody in 3D again, to be able to look at somebody in the eye and not just at the camera. So and even the I'm a hugger, so it's good to, to shake hands and hug people that I haven't seen in a while. So uh, to all the huggers who have suffered over the last 20 months, uh, I think we're all happy again. So this session celebrates the recent release of version one of the SOSA technical standard, the collaborative product of multiple military services, U.S. government stakeholders, and over 120 members of the SOSA consortium. Booz Allen is enthusiastic to have joined SOSA consortium in 2021 as a principal member, and we look forward to working with you in advance this uniquely important open architecture standard. We may be a large company, but we're committed to truly open architectures and standards that can enable the maximum participation by industry partners, large and small, traditional, non-traditional, who build anything from silicon to satellites and everything in between. Again, it's that innovation, that innovation thought that brings us together. So this government-sponsored session is intended to provide you with the latest information about SOSA, the standard, and the consortium. Please, uh, plus, give you a sneak peek at the plans for the future. So it's a very good uh, session. We've got a lot to, to look forward to. We'll also be treated to a remarkable panel uh, experience featuring two senior government leaders, two senior industry representatives, visionaries all who are committed to open architecture in general and SOSA in particular. So thanks for joining us today, and I'll, I'll bring you back. Thank you. and then you'll get the meat of the panel. Uh, as you can see on here, the order that we have, uh, Mr. Trepper is not currently in the room. Uh, we do expect him to come, so if, if he's not here in the next few minutes, then uh, Dr. Conley will uh, take the lead on it. So we'll just uh, reverse, reverse the order a little bit. All of our speakers' bios are in the handout that, we, that you should have all received in walking in. Um, and to that note, there was also a sign-up sheet, so if you uh, did not sign up, we would appreciate if you would, uh, if you would do so uh, before leaving. So, uh, the other speakers, I just mentioned um, Mr. Giorgio Bertoli with the U.S. Army, 
Uh, he will be uh, talking about the standard and how it benefits the warfighter, how uh, it's already starting to be implemented in some case studies, but you get an, a, a, uh, an idea of how uh, it's already making its way into, into programs. Uh, Dr. Naraj Srivastava will be uh, talking about the, um, the standard and how it's it enables uh, suppliers to much more quickly turn around prototypes as well as deployed units for their customers, the service branches. Um, and Dr. Conley will uh, basically wrap the whole thing up, having had a, a experience from both sides of the, of the, the fence, so to speak. So we will have a Q&A session afterwards, so if you have any questions whatsoever, we are going to leave time for that. So for those of you who may not be familiar with SOSA, are there any people in this room who are new to SOSA or not familiar with it? Or give me a show of hands. Wow, that's fantastic. Good news. <laughs> So who we are, we are a collection of both service branch uh, and uh, intelligence community and industry. Uh, it's in, we think in some cases the first instance where a standard has been pulled together uh, by all people involved in, in, the, uh, in, in benefiting from the, from the standards. Uh, it's essentially a open architecture geared towards uh, radar, EOIR, SIGM, EW, and communications, although now we're seeing some benefits being extended far beyond that into other applications as well. It helps improve system, subsystem, platform affordability, um, upgradeability, interoperability. Uh, and the goal was to create a, a open systems architecture that via modular decomposition, so essentially a set of building blocks. This is an infographic that's widely available. It's publicly available, developed within the consortium. It essentially shows the relationship between the different standards, the different organizations. Uh, on the left, you can see the DOD and intelligence community side, uh, the standards that were developed under those different groups, uh, bringing it all together with standards that were developed within the industry, which you see on the right side, um, and together forming an open systems architecture that leverages the best of those different architectures uh, or initiatives. So just briefly, uh, we had, uh, this is from the last time that we actually gave a presentation, which was in 2019. Um, as, for, as CJ mentioned, it's been two years for most of us to see each other in person. So we have eight sponsors currently. Uh, we had one last in 2019. We doubled our principal membership from 2019, uh, eight to now 17. And then we had 59 members at the associate level in 2019, and we're now at 103. And that's actually growing. I think we've got a couple new members uh, joining very soon. There are over 1,000 individuals onboarded, which means those are people who can actively participate in the consortium and in the meetings, the technical working groups, the business working groups. So as um, 
As CJ mentioned, we've just introduced the 1.0 end of September. Uh, there was a ton of work by a lot of people, uh, very dedicated uh, to make that happen. And this is just the beginning. We have a lot more work to do. Uh, we have a conformance program to put together. That's going to take on a lot more work. Um, we had a, a couple uh, inter-op exchanges. There was a big one in 2019 at Georgia Tech. Um, and there's another one planned in March of 2022 at NAVAIR, March 15th, I believe is the date. Um, and there will be more to come. So we did have a face-to-face -face technical interchange meeting in September uh, in Huntsville. Uh, that was attended by over 600 people as well. So uh, there were quite a few demonstrations there, as, uh, which made Ilya very happy. So um, yeah, the, uh, this is a little bit outdated. I did this for AUSA, sorry. So, but there, there was a series of plugfests done at Aberdeen or the, at the Open Innovation Lab. Um, that's just the beginning of several plugfests that they are uh, doing on their, on their behalf. Uh, of course, we have the AOC briefing panel today and the March event that I mentioned. So that's pretty much it for the highlights of SOSA. Um, Ken is, okay. So let me introduce Dr. Conley, he's with Mercury Systems. Uh, at one point, he also held the role that uh, David Trepper is currently in. Um, so let me just. Uh, and this is the advantage of not having charts. Therefore, you guys only have to look at me and my smiling face as opposed to the charts. Um, so first off, good morning, everybody. It is awesome seeing three-dimensional representations. The interesting part about previously looking at right on a computer screen is you could actually see the smiles. I'm assuming that everyone is smiling. If you are not smiling and you are unhappy, Kilo, thank you, you look smiley. Or is that just your mustache uh, that is turned up on the end somehow? Anyway, um, it's like you went to sea for, uh, for a couple months and came back. But anyway, so awesome to see everybody in person, a three-dimensional representation. So one of the things that I think is unique that I actually wanted to do, and now that I'm speaking first, I, I will do. We're gonna do a quick show of hands. Um, and so in that, how many folks are currently in government? So either military, civilian. How many people are currently on the industry side? Good deal. How many people are currently on the industry side but used to be in government? A couple of us. How many people are currently in government but used to be in industry? Awesome. So, with that in mind, we kind of, right, we, we rounded out the room a little bit. For all of us, as we sat down and we heard, uh, you know, Ms. Shu's comments earlier this morning around what does it take to have an innovative ecosystem? By doing that simple show of hands, that is the innovative ecosystem that in large part we need. Uh, one of the jokes that I told uh, last night as we were at the happy hour was in many ways how I visualized being a program manager on the government side of the table was managing dissatisfaction. If the user said that they hated the capability but industry and the taxpayer felt great, we did it wrong. If the taxpayer hated the capability, uh, right? You, you can work through all sides of that. And so you want the taxpayer, the user, and industry, everybody to be a little bit unhappy with what came out the far end, because if anybody is laughing all the way to the bank or anywhere globally, we probably did it a little bit wrong. And so with that in mind, when I look at what did we bring together, what did we accomplish over the last you know couple of months with the release 
of the SOSA 1.0 standard. In many ways, it is that management of that touch of dissatisfaction, right? And so everybody has something where they say, it'd be great if, but we got it really darn close, and we have a baseline from which we now can iterate. And so in many ways, when I look at, you know, what did Ms. Shu talk about earlier this morning, why does it really matter to all of us? It is that ecosystem. It isn't the fact that we have a standard and we went, hey, here's the standard, everything is done, pencils down, we're never going to have to do anything with this ever again. The reality is we want to ride that trend line, no different than she talked about the net assessment, where our adversary capability is going, where are our capabilities going, where is that trend going? We need to do the same thing here, right? And so is that how do we continue working together as a team? How do we continue to build up that larger ecosystem? How do we get that right? And so the other thing that I think is a little bit unique that I wanted to touch on, and actually showed up again uh, last night kind of in the happy hour side, right? You can look at the relative government investment into a particular area, but you also can look at where industry is investing. And the reality is we need both sides for what we're doing. Um, I, I would offer it as a group here today, I don't think we're going to solve it. There are challenges with how the government buys software and how industry generates a return on investment with a only software-based capability, right? So it's easy to hold up my phone and say I want an app store, which is, you know, reminiscent of this, and to say, hey, this is exactly what we need to go get there. It's one thing when you can monetize a return off of that. In comparison, I think what we have accomplished to date and what I'm excited about looking two years into the future with SOSA is we've done the hard work, we have reached consensus, we now have the ability to go through and actually generate that return that all of us were betting on, that ultimately means we're delivering a capability, we're fielding it faster, we're updating it in the field faster, we're able to do those things that we necessarily need to go do. Um, to provide a little bit of interesting operational context, so Moore's Law, the doubling of transistors every 18 months, all of us are used to writing that, in many reasons it's the reason we replaced our computers every two or three years, you know, for the vast majority of our adult lives. If you actually look at machine learning, that doubling of capability is now occurring every three and a half months. Let's put that into military terms. In military terms, that means at the end of a year, your system's 1% the capability. At the end of two years, it's 1%. At the end of a decade, a typical acquisition cycle that we want to go to field something is one one billionth. But then look at how the Navy goes to sea. You write the requirement, you go out, you build the capability, you test the capability, you field it on enough aircraft that you can give it to somebody that they can go do a pre-mission uh, workup, you then go train them, you then do the checkout rides, you then go out and you deploy. And so if you look at that, and let's say it's about five years, you're talking one one hundred thousandth the capability at the end of that mission versus what you went in with the requirement. If we can control what are the interfaces that are discoverable, how we as a human are going to interact with that system, can we actually swap out a card underneath the hood? Can we swap out an algorithm? Does that now mean a system where you used to be able to see this far, you now can see farther? You now can deal with false targets better, so you're putting necessary information in front of a user so they can go ahead and make that necessary decision in a very timely fashion. And so in many ways, I think that's really that exciting part of where we sit today, that having the standard 1.0 lockdown now allows us to say, hey, we want to bring that most advanced AI co-processing capability the ability to do that rapid software and just have it run on whatever that secure processing capability is going to be, we have that ability through the SOSA 1.0 standard to accomplish many of those things. Um, and so with that in mind, the final thing that, that I would offer before turning things over to Giorgio is from my experience in the Pentagon and what I now see is everyone really wants the ability to go one level down in their supply chain. Right? And so if you're buying an aircraft, you want the ability to go down and say, I want to be able to upgrade my radar. And you want that to be an open standard which is discoverable. 
If you're a program manager that is only responsible for developing a radar, you want the ability to go down and say, I want to be able to upgrade my aperture. I want to be able to go down and upgrade my you know, processing subsystem to be able to do that. On the industry side of the table, if you were providing that module, you want the ability to go down and actually make a change on that board to be able to go ahead and do that. And so it's how do we have all of these necessary standards, and I'm going to pun intended, it's kind of like a Russian uh, stacking doll system, right, that begins to build up. But how do all of us get a better control over our supply chain with all of the challenges that we've had through the last roughly two years of a global pandemic associated with microelectronics, bringing those advanced capabilities to the forefront? How do we do that better? How do we do that faster? How do we do that at the speed of relevance? In large part, in my opinion, is the exact reason that we are all brought together uh, here today. And so, Valerie, if it works for you, I can go ahead and turn things over to Georgie, or do you want to come back up? Uh, well, let me just uh, move it over to the slide deck. Perfect. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate that. And thanks for a uh, quick pivot. Appreciate it. <laughs> That's EW, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me just bring up your slides. There we go. Uh, I believe are 100% compatible, and if you disagree, I will happy to have uh, 
discussion with you later after the meeting. Right? But they are, all right? And as a matter of fact, right, the technical lead for CMOS for the Army is the technical lead for, for SOSA. So I can't get more synchronous than that. Right? Um, so once again, the Army uh, calls it CMOS, the DOD calls it SOSA, and the standards body calls it SOSA, but as far as I'm concerned, the two are synonymous. Uh, History-wise, I, I love this chart, right? Uh, not to take anything away from the SOSA guys, right? But we were first, right? <laughs> CMOS started in 2013, and I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, right? So 2013, uh, the, the war was 10 plus years into its making, and we, ST, was part of the problem, right? For a decade now, we've been fielding uh, quick reaction capabilities, right? Uh, Kluge systems to, to deal with the IED problem and to deal with other electronic attack problems and, and sensing problems. Uh, and here we were one day, somewhere in 2013, uh, a group of us standing in our courtyard in one of the vehicles uh, that came back from the field that we had to add yet another capability onto. And we were just sitting, looking at this thing in awe. It could have been horror or shock, one or the other, something, right? But this thing was ridiculous. Uh, I mean, Frankenstein looked handsome, right? I mean, it had a dozen antennas. I'm not exaggerating. Four different radios, five GPS receivers, all dedicated to individual capabilities. It was a monster, right? And by the way, it was completely out of swap. The, the 400 amp alternator on the damn thing couldn't keep up. That was not even big enough anymore. So, at that point, we kind of realized, look, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? There's no way we can sustain this long term. And that's when we started, right, the, the, like the beginnings, if you will, of what SOSA, uh, CMOS and SOSA became, right? Uh, in 2015, as you can see by my timeline there, right, SOSA actually was established. And from that point forward, uh, as, you know, the two really became one, right? We were happy to provide, I guess, an initial leg up to SOSA. Uh, and we've been working lockstep with them throughout uh, the whole time now. Uh, and then coming to 2021, uh, which is now, right, uh, two big milestones for the Army. Uh, in, two, in 2021, we had our very first ACDD approved uh, for CMOS, right? The CMOS mounted uh, forward factor, uh, which is huge news, right? Uh, I have a slide on it later. And then, of course, what we're here for today, which is so, so one point So I'm hoping that, you know, 15, 20 years from now, when historians look back, they're going to see this panel as the, the last drop in the bucket to take so-so over the edge, right? And everybody's in there. And statues will be made of us. <laughs> All right, so what has the Army done? Like I said, we've been doing this for almost a decade now, right? So we have a lot of, a lot of real things that we, we can point to that this thing actually works. Uh, uh, so these are just some examples of all of the different things that we have done to show what the benefits of implementing an open architecture can do. Uh, the SEMA system, that unfortunately, I apologize, um, because this is a destroyed briefing and uh, some of the new temporary guidance, some of the names of these systems were redacted so that they're completely meaningless now. But I'm hoping some of you can recognize what some of these systems actually are already, but I mean, telling you what they are. Uh, but the one that says SEMA system, the, the green one right there, right? That was actually for a special customer, right? And what they wanted to do is they wanted to show that they could have a mounted and dismounted system that was interoperable, right? They had both mounted and dismounted operations. So what you see there is actually a three-car chassis that you could put in a rucksack. And then they can walk up to their vehicle, right? Uh, they can take one of the cars out, put it in the vehicle, and then take advantage of the additional horsepower and, and, and amplifier output that the vehicle could have. And we demonstrated that, and it worked beautifully, right? Uh, the 
SDR one right there, that's the one that I, I love as an S&T guy, right? So that, I can say the name on that one, but that's a commercial thing. That's, that's an NS310, right? Simple little box uh, that my developers uh, in the lab love to use. It's relatively easy to program. If they want to try something uh, in hardware, that, that's the box that they tend to gravitate towards, right? Well, we actually turned it into a C-Bunch card. So now, they can put it on that, and I can go right from the lab right to a vehicle outside, right? And take it to the field and show it again. Uh, and several other examples, right? Uh, the pod there, I'm hoping people are going to recognize. We do have APNT applications, and now even the radio community is coming on board with several waveforms from multiple radios being implemented into cards. We're even getting into digital radio heads. So funny story, right? We had Dr. Jetty, uh, when he was still ASOL, uh, in, uh, in the building about a year or so, somewhere, somewhere in there. Um, and we were showing him CMOS, and we're so proud. Look, we got this whole uh, modular open architecture, so is the CMOS, and look, and, and he fixated on, on the cabling and all the plugs. It's like, you still got way too many cables. What are you going to do about the cables, right? So, and he's right, right? Cabling will still eat your lunch a little bit. CMOS certainly helps, but it doesn't alleviate the whole problem. So one of the things we're pushing into now is the whole radiohead content, right? Where you put as much as you can right by the antenna to minimize the cable. So, CMOS mounted form factor. Like I said, I'm incredibly proud of this one, right? We helped uh, get this, uh, this requirement up and running. Uh, we're supporting the PMs and trying to implement them now. And we actually already have demoed certain capabilities, right? We have a, a, a proof of concept that tried to integrate, as you can see there, PNT, comms, uh, and some C2 applications all in one common chassis. And this was just demoed at a field event that I apparently can't mention because it was redacted on the chart. Right, so we're moving forward. As far as I'm concerned, this is huge, right? So look, look what we're trying to do, right? In one common form factor, Mission Command, PNT, comms, and EW. Right, from the SNT side, we're still innovating, right? As, as Bill mentioned, the standard is not done, it will never be done. There's always gonna be extensions to it that need to happen, right? One of the ones that, one of the platforms we're looking at now is high altitude. High altitude seems to be in vogue right now. I personally believe in it. Um, I'm a big fan of what can be achieved at those, at those elevations. Uh, but it has different considerations, right? At that altitude, the temperature is minus 40 to minus 60. Landing is not necessarily a lovely little parachute land, right? So you have to have some significant shopping vibe. So we had this one car chassis developed. Uh, and we actually put two of them on the gondola there, as you can see. Uh, a single board computer, if you will, and a digital receiver, and we flew it. We flew it just this past uh, uh, October uh, over the Great Plains of uh, North Dakota, right, at altitude. Uh, did a bunch of environmentals, did a bunch of collects, and it, from all and extensive purposes, it seemed to work great, right? And once again, that same card, right, the chassis is specialized to deal with those environments, but that same card will work in any other seamless uh, chassis. Right? Here's another one, like interoperability is huge, right? Huge, I cannot stress that enough, right? So one of the great things about SOSA uh, is that we can share resources with our uh, sister services, right? And we have demonstrated this, and I believe we have live demos here as part of the, the symposium as well. Uh, but here was one experiment that we did not that long ago, right, 2020, where we had a CMOS army built chassis, right? Uh, cards and a SOSA prototype from the Air Force and you took one card, you plugged it into the other uh, and basically it was truly plug and play, right? Plug and play. No changes needed, the thing just worked. 
right? So the Army has established, um, with, with the desire to have the CMOS mounted form factor, right, we understood that there was a need to have an Army kind of governance body, right, to make sure that uh, things like, who's going to verify that this thing that I'm buying from a vendor is truly SOSA compliant, things like that, right, to actually just help uh, with the, the, the various stakeholders understand what CMOS uh, is and the subtleties of it, right? Uh, much like uh, a big standard, right? This is actually a group of standards. Uh, it's hard to go from paper to an actual implementation without some expertise, right? So the standard body, as you can see, includes most of our key PEOs, right? It includes SMT, it includes other stakeholders, uh, is there to help ensure that we have an ecosystem, if you will, within the Army uh, to help shepherd this along. Uh, where are we going next, right? So uh, another great application that we're looking to expand in, in the Army is small form factor kind of stuff, right? Think small UAVs, UASs kind of uh, things. Uh, now, the current standard uh, is a little bulky, right? It's a little bit power-hunting. So how can we actually extend it to fit into those platforms, right? So this is one of the things that we're looking at. We're looking at a small form factor version of uh, of SOSA, right? And SOSA is actually leading this charge here. We're just helping. Uh, so this is just one example of it. VNX is a standard that uh, uh, significantly reduces the form factor of the standard. There's also a, a half v, uh, VPX version, I believe, right, that we're looking at. Uh, uh, so, once again, there are going to be cases where we have to extend this standard, uh, but the architecture will remain. Right? And then just to show you, right, I'm, I'm really proud of some of these charts. Every time we, we give a briefing, we try to update these to include others. But there's a, a huge ecosystem building, right? I actually took a walk around the floor this morning, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to see, right, every time I do one of these things, uh, how many different booths have some sort of CMOS card or, or, or flavor to them, uh, right? So these are all companies that build chassis, right? All different shapes and sizes and number of cards, but once again, each card should fit, right? I already mentioned the radio heads, right? And then we have radio cards, we have GPU cards, right? This truly shows how as a, as a company, right, small or large, uh, you can specialize, right? You can be, a, a, you know, I saw a couple of vendors in the booths downstairs, right, that build CMOS or, or SOSA, should I say, right? Uh, digitizers, and that's what they do, right? That's fantastic, right? They could be the greatest, you know, Digitizer known to man, and I can use it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not relying on, on, on uh, a big LSI to, to give me the whole turnkey solution. All right, and, and that's it. That's all I have for you today. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Raj to take you the rest of the way, and then I'm hoping to answer questions again. Thank you.
So before I get into uh, defense of how we've been using SOSA, I want to talk about one more thing, what standard does. And it's not just standard, how it changes the business model. So if you look at the, the chart on the top, I mean, it actually shows you the evolution of what happened to the proprietary type smartphones. They were also called smartphones to what happened with once iOS and Android came. Within three years, they actually started dominating the marketplace. And uh, what, what are the key factors? What, what, what did they do that, that took these people who've been working on these phones for 10 years before that? And they were all good companies. They were, you know, uh, standard OSs that they were using, but they were owned by companies, but they were published thing. I could write an application for, for, for those applications, but the only way I interacted with that platform is the, through the platform owner. So if I wanted to provide a solution, I had to go to Motorola and say, hey, I want to put this application on your platform, and they decided if they wanted it or not. The end consumer had no say into it. What iOS and Android did was they changed that model completely. They opened up the interfaces, I can write an application, I can directly sell to the consumer. So the developer was connected to the end user. The platform provider provided the platform, but it allowed you to be connected to the marketplace directly. So now you have a larger providers and larger consumers, and it opened up the marketplace, and within three years they dominated the market, and now you know, there's no, nothing else left, right? If you look at it today. So having an open standard is also going to open up opportunities for small business like specific defense and middle-sized large businesses to be able to provide services to drive innovation that the warfighter needs at a much faster pace as Bill was pointing out in his very eloquent opening remarks. So, so, so what, what SOSA is doing is not something in some sense something absolutely new. I mean it has been done in other areas before it definitely in the commercial market that's I mean I, I used to work at HP at one of my previous slides but you know, the standard, so they went through a very painful transition when I was there, going from a lot of proprietary stuff to open system, going from proprietary supercomputers to, to standard-based clusters to, to cloud. But it took, it, it was a painful transition for them, right? Uh, but it can be done, it has been done before. And that's, that's what SOSA and CMOS is bringing the, the opportunity, and as a small company, that, that's our bread and butter at this point. So how does it, how has it been helping us uh, over the last year and a half? So we came into existence in February, January 2020. March, everything shut down and we couldn't even have our first all hands together so we can all get together and say, hey, we have we are a new company. Uh, that was done on Zoom at the time before we moved to Teams. But with the, the lockdown, with everybody at you know, distributed, we have people working from home, people working, you know, yeah, mostly working from home, people distributed from East Coast to West Coast, North to South, we have people in, in Indiana, in Florida, Boston, California, Seattle, people distributed all over. But with that distributed you know, set of people, just about 100 people, what we have been able to do for a year and a half, using the standard, so we leaned forward at the time it wasn't even the SOSA reference architecture one, it was a snapshot three. We said, okay, we're going to adapt the architecture and we're going to build our systems using CMOS SOSA snapshot three. And we started uh, walking down that path and very quickly we were doing a quarterly demo 
and many of you probably been on those, our quarterly demo we were doing it on teams uh, on marching on the CMFF path. So we're doing a full CMFF demos, um, something that Georgia talked about, in a, in a CMOS box, uh, combining E-emission, SIG emission, uh, transmission, all in one box, uh, supporting the, the, uh, the tools from the S2 community, from the Army S3 community, and S6 community. And, and we've been progressively using an Agile model, and when every quarter we've been adding more capability to that box. And it's not by, by ourselves. I mean, we get we source things from other other vendors from the ecosystem. We get a card from Herrick, we will get a card from somebody else. But creating that complete system and trying to drive the the, the lever, leveraging the SOSA ecosystem, SOSA standard to create capabilities, but do that very quickly, very, very in, in a very agile fashion. So, so what we have noticed is that, uh, and be able to integrate third-party software. I mean, I, I shouldn't just say hardware. Bringing in other third-party software. So, if you look at the chart over there, in that one year. We integrated all these different hardware and capabilities, but we also brought, brought in third-party software that's, that's shown on, on the capability, taking taking uh, things as a GFE like uh, Army's EWPMP program to be able to do EA capability so the soldier doesn't have to learn a new UI to do ESEA capability and do modeling and same for the electronic warfare. Are using Army's Photon for doing SIGIN, fully integrated one of the charted black, I don't know how well this shows up on the screen, but it's showing you that we can drive the, the photon at full bandwidth uh, using all standard interfaces. So anybody can take what we did and drop their own uh, application in, and get the benefit of that in the photon environment. Right? So we've noticed that in about 14 months, we were able to, to take a, a bare-bone system, put the cards in, Start integrating software, not just ours, and third-party software, and actually show capa full capabilities to the warfighter in less than less than a year. And, and what we also noticed, based on you know, I've worked at many primes and bigger companies, I was doing that at, at, at a ten times the pace at one tenth the cost. Uh, my, my, one of my initial IDAD, I mean, I went to my CEO and I said, I need about this much IDAD money to, to get started. And he laughed at me and said, you're never going to get that done with that kind of money. He said, you need 10 times that much money and we don't have it. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to throw any money at this point. Like, just believe in this, it will work. And to this day, I mean, he actually made me put that on the chart. That you need to talk about this, that you guys got, got this done in that little money thing. So that's the, that's the key message here, that standards that drive not just innovation, but also reduction in cost and schedule. That's how we can keep pace with the threat, is by leveraging standards like SOSA, so you can innovate at a modular level and all the modules together, bring up the system. Uh, and that, that system is what we need to, to base the threat, right? So that, that's, uh, that's the lessons that uh, we learned uh, very quickly in the last year and a half, how SOSA can help us. And we are a company, we are doing, uh, you know, you can come to our booth, you will see that we are actually doing real things with these CMOS SOSA systems. It's not just a concept or a card or a, or a SMT thing, we are actually building systems. Uh, the SOSA ecosystem is, you know, we've talked about this, it's not quite the, the Apple ecosystem that we, that's shown over here, but it's growing and it's, 
it's robust and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nice competitive land, landscape. I mean, it's, it's what makes us better. I mean, it's kind of like being in a race. I mean, if you just run by yourself, your timing will be X. But when you're actually in a race, when you're, when somebody is driving you in front of you, somebody is, you have to look over your shoulder, you actually do better. Your timing is much better when you're actually competing. Right? So that competitive ecosystem is going to make us all better collectively. And that, that's the best for the warfighter. Hopefully, we will have more questions. Uh, that's my position. We have our last speaker, which is uh, Mr. Dave Trumper. He is the Director of Electronic Warfare with the Office of the uh, Secretary of Defense. Hopefully, I got that right. Uh, let me just bring you back to your slides. And then we'll take your questions after. I, I was like, executive decision made from both ends of the table. We're going to run five minutes over. And that way, we're, we're guaranteed to wake it back down from the keynote and, and be able to stick around and do questions also with folks on The floor is yours. So yes, I am Director of Electronic Warfare, Office of Secretary of Defense, Acquisition and Sustainment, right? So I'm on the acquisition side, despite having grown up in the S&T world. So I started in Navy S&T, went on to Office of Research, went to DARPA, before coming over to the acquisition side, thinking I was going to change the world, right? I had, I had fought the valley of death, and I was going to help fix it. What I discovered is there's some even more fundamental challenges in the way we acquire a new system that need to be addressed even before we can get to that valley of death fight. And open architectures is one of those things. So just, just to, for context of what I'm going to talk about in regards to CMOS and SOS and the value they provide, I'm going to throw up a little bit of military RF irony here, uh, starting with Marconi all the way back in the beginning, right? Discovery that you can communicate information across the, the radio frequency spectrum. And almost immediately we saw in the, the Russo-Japanese war that if one, one side turned up their radios really loud, they could prevent the other side from talking, right? So almost immediately people figured out how, how to manipulate the spectrum to take advantage of it. And so we saw jamming emerge from that. And there was a discovery that you can look at those signals and figure out who's talking. And so you have this signal community evolve. And then, and then there's a recognition that as, as traffic passes between RF transmitters and receivers, there's some interference there. And you see this telemobile scope shows up and then the evolution radar happens. So the first hundred years of military RF evolved into these various different RF using communities that are effectively created stovepipes in the way we use the RF spectrum. And those stovepipes don't just exist in the way the spectrum is used, but they also exist in the way the spectrum is acquired. Right, so within ANS, if you look at the Department of Defense and how we acquire spectrum using systems, what you will find is acquisition programs that are doing radar EW, acquisition programs that are doing comms EW, acquisition programs that are doing radios, that are doing radars, that are doing PNT, that are doing SIGIN. They're all disconnected. Right? They, they are acquiring systems for their purpose. They're acquiring their hardware, they're acquiring their software, they're acquiring their applications for their purpose. There is no crosstalk that happens between those acquisition programs historically that would allow them to leverage across those different acquisition programs across the services. But I think as RF spectrum using professionals, as we all are in this room, you recognize that if you step away from the application, if you step away from the platform, that suddenly there is an opportunity to get bang for the buck, the bang for the buck investment, the dollar invested here, and say detecting a low probability of intercept signal actually can multiply by four because the other services, the other communities need that capability. 
So there's a recognition that happens within the department that you see that. So as we evolve into the 21st century, this is where the irony gets, and you start to see the convergence of these different things. You go from these stovepipe systems towards multi-function systems that are capable of hosting a variety of different functions. And I think many of you are familiar with, if we're not performers on the, the Navy's integrated topside program, which was the evolution of a multi-function EW program in the Navy that's about 25 years old that looked at, can I use a single aperture to support comms, information operations, and EW, so a multi-function aperture. And what that system was really doing is it was putting an antenna in front of a bunch of different boxes, and those boxes were sharing the antenna. Right? So we get to that first column there that shows that here I've got a resource allocation manager that separates the use of an antenna or the coordinates the use of the spectrum across these disparate using boxes. So as we follow that evolution, CMOS and SOSA come to the front, we start to see more multifunction programs show up. We see the evolution of software-defined radio, and we see these opportunities where now an RF function can exist as a software application rather than its own independent box. And so you start to get the real multifunction value, the use of a single box to support multiple missions. And I see SOSA and CMOS effectively standardizing the way in which we do that. Now that's it's really important because the open architecture, the, the the value of open architecture is not new. I think we all recognize that value, that open architecture standardized interfaces uh, paradigm was recognized more than a decade ago that there was value. The problem was everybody was trying to do it, right? So, so you had different open architectures, different standards coming in from all over the place, and so it became challenging for any entity to identify the horse that they wanted to, to ride on for that open architecture, and, and it became risk. So when you looked at the acquisition programs and you looked at why aren't acquisition programs implementing standard open architectures that the government owns, right, that the government can validate, as was pointed out earlier, can, can show that, that that functionality is compatible with this government open architecture, it, it equated to risk. And a, and a perfect example of this was managing submarine EW systems. About a decade ago, we were looking at an open architecture that would allow radar comms and EW functions to coexist as software application on a shared hardware environment. The acquisition program was forward-leaning. They wanted to own the risk of defining what, this, what that open architecture looked like, the layers that were in between that system that, that provided the, the openness there. There was an acquisition shift, a new acquisition PM came in, and that new acquisition PM didn't want to have the risk of saying what those interfaces should be or, or defining where the interfaces should come from. And so they said, no, no, we're going to throw this over the fence. And what you ended up with was an open architecture that had potentially a proprietary pin that defeated the entire purpose, right? So I think many of us have experienced that. Uh, yes, it's open, it's used as the speed of standard, it's fantastic, but then when you when you lift the hood, what you discover is that there's a power pin or something that's proprietary, and that in and of itself means you have to go to that vendor to use that system because it's not actually open. It just, it just checks the box. Right. So, what's the value that I see SOSA and CMOS bringing to this is the way that they did it and how they got traction with it. Right. So, so many people tried to do it, many people failed, but what SOSA and CMOS did is they built a consortium. Right. They went from the bottom up, they did a grassroots campaign, and they got developers actually implementing CMOS and SOSA standards within their boxes and then propagating that up. Right. So instead of the acquisition PM saying, thou shalt use SOSA and CMOS, what the acquisition PM and even the PEOs were seeing was vendors that were submitting proposals that said, we are SOSA and CMOS compliance, compliant, despite not being required to. Right? And so when that happened, 
Suddenly, the acquisition PMs and the PEOs are looking at all these RFP, RF, RFPs and they're, they're comparing them and they're saying, this is a pretty standard way of building an RF system. Now I can snap the chalk line and reduce my own risk of dictating a standard and say, you know what, you're all going to be CMOS and social compliant. That grassroots campaign got traction within the acquisition PM shops and the PEOs. So instead of trying to go from the top and going down and dictating that programs shall use these standards, what ended up happening was it propagated up from the bottom. You had users that were already using it, users that understood the value, users that understood the ability to move functionality across systems and share standards, and that became resident in the programs. And so now what we're seeing is the propagation out of that. So that the Army was one of the first that said, at the PEO level, thou shalt use these standards within my acquisition programs, multiple acquisition programs. Suddenly, acquisition program A invests in a capability. Acquisition B may discover that they need a similar capability. Now you reduce time, you reduce money, you move it across those acquisition programs and it inherently gets across that boundary. What we're seeing now is it's propagating out further. So now, not just the originating PEO that said, thou shalt you do it, you're seeing it propagate to the other PEOs, and other PEOs are saying, yes, you're also going to do it in my comms domain. You're going to do it in my PNT domain. And so now you really start to see the benefit of cross-service, cross-program uh, pollination of new capabilities in RF spectrum music systems. So if you keep pulling that thread, of course I'm from DARPA, so I love the, I love the threads, and you look at what, what happens next, right? We, we've watched this this divergence of RF functions over the first hundred years, now we're starting to see this convergence of RF functions that's happening here in the first few decades. What comes next? Right? If, you, if you start looking at all the challenges we have, signature control, managing our spectrum, deconflicting with spectrum music systems, interoperability across our spectrum functions, you start to look at a box that can inherently adapt itself based on what's its, uh, what's its objective function. Does it, does it want to have ISR? Does it want to communicate? Does it want to do BW functionality? And then it tailors its emissions based on that objective function. So instead of having disparate comms waveforms, here's my comms application, here's my radar application, here's my EW application, here's my PNT application, it's actually an MSO box, right? And this MSO box on the fly adapts what it's doing because it wants to know where it is. It wants to communicate information. It wants to understand the spectrum. It's harvesting information. It's harvesting spectrum energy out of the environment because it can observe. It can, it can uh, isolate signals. It can leverage those signals to do biostatics, tests, coherent location. And you start to see this evolution of RF as we know it to be more of an integrated RF functionality that, that leverages the information that's available in the spectrum, which inherently deconflicts, inherently gives you signature control, makes you extraordinarily spectrum efficient. It challenges the laws of physics, right? Because immediately when you say that, the, the radar radar folks will say, well, wait a minute, I need, the, my waveform is the way it is because of physics, right? That I have to use physics to derive that waveform. But if you think about it in strategic context, I want to control my signature, I want to be spectrally pure, I want to be spectrally uh, efficient, you start to see that polluting a waveform for the purpose of multiple functions simultaneously, whether it's communicating and getting ISR at the same time, starts to create a strategic value that needs to be considered closely. So as we, as we continue, we are trumpeting within ANS the utility of SOSA and CMOS. We are looking at capabilities and how do those capabilities migrate across the services. So if the submarine community builds a capability that suddenly an EW person can recognize that capability is needed by the Army Ground Forces, I can take that algorithm and I can put it into the Army vehicle and have the functionality there. And I use those two examples very specifically because if you look at it from a surface level, you would say, well, what does a submarine 
have in common with a ground vehicle. Right? They, they're in completely different operational environments. They couldn't, they couldn't be connected at all. But if you look at a submarine operating at periscope depth, and you look at the real estate that, that submarine has for antennas, and you look at all the RF functionality that's happening on, the, on that sail, that submarine at periscope depth, it actually translates really well to a ground vehicle, and the, the real estate that a ground vehicle has for antennas, how they, how they interfere with each other, how do you deconflict those different signals, and what you discover when you keep pulling, pulling the layers of that onion back is you find that at its heart, those are very similar uh, EWRF challenges, and they, they are very compatible in terms of moving capabilities. So if a submarine EWRF comms system was SOSA compliant and an Army ground vehicle was SOSA CMOS compliant, there would be the ability to leverage the investment that the submarine community made in an EW system or a communications capability and move it directly over to a ground vehicle. So, so from my perspective, I see the paradigm that SOSA and CMOS established for getting traction for open architectures as invaluable. Because I think many of us, probably in this room, fought open fought for open architectures. We gotta do it, we gotta do it this way. They were all colliding, they weren't getting any traction. Ilya, Ben Pettigord up at the Army collectively created this consortium that percolated it up from the bottom. And what we have now seen is acquisition of PEO level buy-in that's now that's starting to bear the fruit that I think we want to see, both in terms of investment savings, but also in terms of capability or of uh, uh, time saving, development savings, and migration capability across the So with that, I think uh, I will open to questions and happy to what uh, That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest here live at AOC 2021. I want to thank Mercury Systems. Mercury, innovation that matters by and for the people who matter. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.